1: Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have another awesome guest with me, Dr. Michael Peterson. He is professor of philosophy at Asbury Theological Seminary. His books include Science, Evolution, and Religion, God, and Evil, and With All Your Mind, including uh, this wonderful new book, C.S. Lewis and the Christian Worldview, which is out uh, 2020 this year. And then he also has a forthcoming book from Cambridge, uh, called religion and the biosciences. So, uh, without further ado, here, Dr. Peterson, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. You're welcome. Good to be here. Yeah. So, um, where do I even want to start? We just had such a great conversation off off uh, air about faith and philosophy. Um, so, can we just rehash that a little bit? So, we were talking about uh, some of the some of the greats. We are talking about Keith Andel. We were talking about Art homes and how. Um, You were part of this um, original movement, which broadened the scope of philosophy and kind of made way for the next generation and the next, next generation of Christian philosophers. That's um, true. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about faith and philosophy really quickly?
0: Yeah. I, faith and philosophy is really um, the publishing wing of the Society of Christian Philosophers, which was founded uh, in 1978. At the APA, uh, a number of us Christian philosophers had found each other, um, made some connections during the '70s, particularly the late 1970s, and decided that we'd have a sort of an organizational meeting in um, in conjunction with the APA, which meets annually,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and um, uh, and we would send out some kind of a circular that if anybody else wanted to come and talk about it in- interest in both being a philosopher and being a Christian, just ecumenically conceived, Mm -hmm. no denominational or, uh, you know, sectarian restrictions.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, And honestly, the handful of us that found each other and would often circulate by snail mail, our correspondence back in the 70s, couldn't have been more than a dozen, dozen and a half people. Yeah. And we put this notice out. It got in the APA bulletin, of course, like all the other groups do when they publish the APA bulletin for a conference. And, um, uh, we were overwhelmed hmm. by the turnout and, um, it, it was a double door on the room. We had to open that and let people just do standing room only and overflow into the hallway wow. of, the, of the Netherland Hilton hotel in Cincinnati that year. And, um, um, We let Bill Alston, the great William Alston, uh, arguably one of the best philosophers of language in the world at the Mm -hmm. time, uh, give his testimony about his return to faith uh, while on sabbatical at Oxford. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did that, and it was very moving, and we decided at that time to go ahead and and declare that we were going to start a new society, the Society of Christian Philosophers, and elect Bill first president. Wow. Very momentous occasion. Yeah, well, that's huge um, in
1: so many different ways because you know now we have uh, this resurgence in, of Christian philosophers, Christian philosophy of religion, but then it's even it out to uh, this this new topic called analytic theology, right? Uh, which is you know like the, the grandchildren of that movement. And mm-hmm. my my professor is a, a professor of analytic theology, and
0: I've benefited from that, which is fantastic. It's true. I mean, when I did my texts. I saw this coming, um, this wave coming. I said to my Oxford editor, um, you know, the surfer does not create the wave. The surfer times it. And, and I know nothing about surfing. It just sounded good to say. <laughs> I think that's right, yeah. <laughs> but it's not, as long as you're buying this, that's great. So I said to her, um, uh, this wave is coming. There are no texts. There's been burnout in philosophy and religion except for the Catholic colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. that didn't succumb to positivism and a lot of the other movements that really hurt a robust sort of realist type philosophy of religion. Theology really is about something real and that you can make statements about theological realities that are actually uh, true or false. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was all kind of burned out. No good textbooks, no up to date textbooks. And so when I did my textbook, in the early nineties, um, reason and religious belief, uh, for the first time ever, I included philosophical analysis of Christian doctrines.
2: Yeah.
0: And, um, within, uh, several years I quit doing that because it had spun off the rebirth of philosophical theology. Mm-hmm. That's more philosophical theology, technically than just philosophy of religion. Cause it's, it's, It's looking uh, at an analytic way at specifically Christian doctrines. right? Uh, Incarnation, prayer, miracle, whatever. So we revived philosophical theology and then began to realize we're bringing analytic tools to this task. And so in recent years, it's just been labeled analytic theology. Yep. Uh, Great stuff.
1: Yeah, I've been I've been really blessed by it, and uh, yeah, it's been fantastic. But for you, you um, you're not a you you weren't trained specifically as a philosopher of religion. You're trained as a, a philosopher of science. That's true. So yeah. how did yeah? How did you get into? Um, well, first,
0: actually, I'm really interested. What did you do your um, dissertation on? Concept of causality in 20th century philosophy science. Wow. Okay, that's a big. <laughs> It's it's related to the concept of scientific law. Yep. Laws pick out causes and formulate causes. And um, it's related to the the idea of scientific explanation. Mm -hmm. But uh, largely pushing off, uh, analyzing, evaluating, and pushing off of the prevailing Humean uh, concepts of causality that that were in in the positivist movement, which was born out of philosophy of science. Yep. And then, kind of spilled over onto everything else, including religious language. That's right. You yeah, know,
1: metaphysics was supposed to be bunk after
0: that. It's it's right. So at any rate, um, I did that, and my dissertation advisor Edward Madden um, had a a book, a real a realist philosophy science book called Causal Powers, and I largely did it in in that area. But Ed was also in print as being a big atheist. Hmm. And in the 60s, uh, again, that's really uh, kind of a dry spell in philosophy of religion, right. but philosophy um, of the problem of evil was talked about to some extent, not, not in the very robust way it is now, but John Hick, the great John Hick, had a book, Evil and the God of Love. Yep. 66 was the publication date, very magisterial work in many ways. And that's for the, the side of theism and Christianity. And Ed Madden had a book published in 68, Evil and the Concept of God, hmm. where he's kind of the, uh, the, the voice of the critic, the voice of the atheist against the theist and Christian. And interestingly, early in that book, he says the logical problem, we hadn't used the labels at that time, logical problem and evidential problem of evil, but, mm-hmm. um, which were kind of my labels actually early in the in this literature, wow. Because of Ed, because of Ed, because he said early on, the logical problem um, is not nearly as formidable as people think. He's an atheist, yeah, uh, but he says it's really more of, of a business of of the evidence of evil brought against Christian and theistic beliefs. So the idea of an evidential argument was born in his book. Wow, 1968 didn't catch on. It just didn't catch on. So the, the planning is rebuttal yep. of the of, of logical argument had to catch on and solidify for several more years until Bill Rowe um, published his work on the problem of evil in the late 70s, over a decade later after Ed had already written this, and he comes out with his version of an evidential argument, and it, it gets uptake.
1: Yeah. That's
0: so so- Bill Rowe we look at.
1: Well, I, I did not know that language came from there. Uh, you know, I kind of have the idealized uh, version from, you know, planning a kind of put to death uh, Mackie's logical problem of evil. And then William Rowe comes along and he talks about a. Is it Rowe or Mackie who talks about the deer in the woods with the, the burning Bill log? Bill Rowe, the case sure. of
0: Bambi, it came to be called. The case okay,
1: the case of Bambi, yeah. Bambi. <laughs> yeah. And, and that has to do with like gratuitous evil and the mount of evil. And, and the, the conversation and evil has changed because of this language, because right. of planning on, and because what you're saying comes back all the way to your advisor then.
0: Yeah. Gratuitous evil is Ed's word. And why do we get that word uh, into the liter- current literature? It's from Ed through me. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's R- fantastic. Uh, that's so amazing. I'm writing
1: my, my master's thesis and uh, I'm looking at the uh, authorial, analogy. And I'm pulling a little bit from C.S. Lewis, a little bit from uh, Kevin Van Hooser, but I'm talking about the, the problem of gratuitous evil and then the problem of the amount of evil. So it's it's amazing yeah. to see it all come back in this conversation. Yeah. yeah. So we could talk about so much of that and hopefully maybe someday we can, but I had John because I want to talk about C.S. Lewis and the Christian worldview. Yeah. And this is another book that I'm reading uh, for Dr. Van Hooser. I'm doing a reading class on Cornelius Van Til and C.S. Lewis. And so I saw this book come out and any book on C.S. Lewis as thinker, philosopher, I will buy. Just I don't care who writes it. I will buy it. But I was so encouraged to see that it said in the Christian worldview, especially since I'm putting Lewis in conversation with Van Til, who really focused on worldviews, the Christian worldview. So um,
0: in your – just right off the bat, how would you get into C.S. Lewis? I think I got into Lewis by buying Mere Christianity and Miracles – Probably in the very late '60s or very early '70s, as an undergrad, wow, philosophy major, and um, just loved it. And I knew that uh, it was not technical philosophy, but had very good philosophical instincts. Yeah, and uh, you know, back at the I was a a fairly new Christian as an undergrad, uh, converted at age sixteen. And uh, by my wife's family wow. and um, ended up getting getting married out of that as well. So <laughs> it's a good deal. <laughs> uh, pretty good deal. And um, uh, so I was thinking about what my future calling and career would be like and mm-hmm. something along the lines maybe of the intellectual presentation of Christian faith. I've always been kind of an academic oriented person. And uh, I saw that modeled in a certain way in Lewis.
1: Yeah. That's so interesting to me because, um, for, for me coming downstream of guys like you and, um, and planning and all these folks, it seems like, yeah, of course I've, I've seen you guys do it. And so I have something to look to, but what would make, you said you were kind of an academic, but what would drive you to want to be a philosopher in that era where it wasn't okay for Christians to be philosophers or wasn't looked at as like a, an okay thing?
0: That, that's a really good question. Um, I just loved it. I mean, if you think about it, um, you've got to take your skills, your passions, your opportunities, and find, in a sense, where they intersect to find your contribution and calling. Mm -hmm. And at that time, newly converted, pretty academic, I saw in the religious community just enough um, anti-intellectualism or a little Um, distancing from intellectual things that I didn't think was healthy. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty young and naive at that point in my life, but I still felt that way Mm -hmm. and felt that uh, it could use all the help it could get on the intellectual side. Yeah, I saw from Lewis, among others, uh, that it really had intellectual content, and the intellectual content is potent. Yeah. And then, in a sense, that's one thing I wanted to express in the book on Lewis.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so helpful. And that brings us right next, uh, right to our next point. So you said uh, Mere Christianity is not a work of philosophy, but it's got philosophical teeth. You could tell that Lewis had been thinking philosophically. Um, So was C.S. Lewis a philosopher? Would you categorize him as a philosopher?
0: I would. And as not a professional philosopher. But there's a deeper truth about every person being mm. their own philosopher, holding beliefs about very important uh, and unavoidable philosophical issues like what is the meaning of life? Yeah, What does it mean to be a human being? What are the grounds of my moral obligations? Uh, these are philosophical issues that even the um, uneducated or unphilosophically tutored people think about just to be human yeah and so he's definitely a philosopher in that sense but also of course uh, you may or may not know that he took three honors degrees at oxford yeah (laughs) classics literature and philosophy and tried his early wings teaching philosophy at the university level but eventually got a job doing literature
1: yeah yeah, that's right. I, I think maybe Barkman's book recounted yeah. that, um, that he was uh, a tutor for for F. H. Bradley's like grandson or something like that when he yeah. was a tutor. I'm um, sure. so he, he did do some work in philosophy uh, there at Oxford, which after his own degree in that, which is so interesting to me.
0: That's true. And philosophy at that time, he'll admit, was very difficult linguistic philosophy, and he tangled with several who were kind of linguistic philosophers. And um, he gives a sort of a mixed evaluation of his own performance, but he always, he always has instincts to go to the, what's most at stake, most important, and not be sort of befuddled by the technicalities.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. And I think the, the people he was inter- interacting with at the time were they were shaped by like the early Wittgenstein, right? And so uh,
0: uh, both, right? both the earlier and the later.
1: Oh, okay. Okay, so, I didn't know ordinary language was around at that point,
0: yeah. I, uh, yeah, because um, the Yanscom legend where uh, Jenny yep. Anskom was at the Socratic Club when mm-hmm. he read the third chapter of Miracles and has the very famous legendary encounter. Yeah. Uh, she's speaking on behalf of ordinary language philosophy.
1: Okay, that, that makes sense. I should have looked at that more. <clears throat> yeah, so there's a whole – and for, for those who are not uh, familiar – Uh, Elizabeth Anscombe was a very good philosopher, and she had studied under Wittgenstein and has translated some of his works. And they had this Socratic club where they're they're debating philosophy. And uh, there's this huge legend that she just wiped the floor with C.S. Lewis's third chapter of Miracles. And then he decided to move into stories uh, of children's fairy stories instead of doing direct apologetics now. (laughs) And so uh, a couple of guys have come along: Victor Reppert, um, Jerry Root. You know he he goes at that pretty pretty hard. What do you think about that whole myth and uh, Lewis? You know his performance against Anscombe?
0: Uh, I th- I do think that the uh, sort of the extremely negative interpretation is just wrong, mm-hmm. incorrect to the facts. Yeah, and uh, may come from people who'd like it to be true. <laughs> <clears throat> but um, Lewis. Uh, you know, he changed the title of the chapter in the next edition. Yeah. From because- well, the first the first chapter, because he's the sworn opponent, talk about worldview encounter. Here we go. A theist. He's a sworn opponent of, of naturalism. Mm-hmm. And not that there aren't other worldviews right. on the cafeteria line of worldviews, but in secular, Western, modern culture naturalism Mm -hmm. really is the default worldview of atheism. Yeah. Because atheism is really not a a full-orbed worldview. Um, It's entailment of naturalism. Yeah. But if it's going to make any positive statements other than we're not a theist, uh, then it has to have the framework of other naturalist, you know, assumptions. Yeah. And so um, Lewis was certainly um, an opponent of that, and that is his target, among other, goals to accomplish in miracles. Yeah. The miracles book, Chapter 3, is his attempt to show that there's something deeply wrong with naturalism that will not allow to account for the um, validity of human reason. Yeah. He titles it the self-contradiction of naturalism, which is technically um, inaccurate. Mm-hmm. She showed that, Anscombe showed that, and also helped clarify some verbal distinctions, like the, the distinction between reasons and causes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so, I, I found that that actually very helpful in my own work, in my own thought. And then also uh, something I think she talked about was uh, non-rational causes instead of everything either being irrational or, or not. Or,
0: and he cleaned that up. and yeah. When he rewrote the chapter, he cleaned that up and he retitled it. He knew there's still something deeply wrong mm-hmm. with the naturalist worldview in relation to all we know about human reason. Yeah. And so he just entitles the next edition, Chapter 3, The Cardinal Difficulty Yeah, of, na- of the Naturalist.
1: Yeah. I had to actually, I had to go on eBay and find one of his, I think it's 1941 when he published it. I, def- I had to find one of the originals to even find that original chapter because all yeah. the ones you get today are all revised. It's true. Yeah. So, um, okay, so going back to this book, there's there's been a lot written on C.S. Lewis as philosopher, as thinker. Um, so how does your book, C.S. Lewis and the Christian Worldview, how does that differ from other books by like Barkman, McGrath, Baggett, you know, um, uh, Krift or Kreeft? Um, so what made you want to write this book now? And then how does it differ from the other ones already
0: published? For several decades, at least two decades, I've been convinced that this book had to exist. I just recently got around to writing it, finishing it. Um, For one thing, the literature on Lewis predominantly is about his biography Mm -hmm. or his literature, all good stuff. And these have created whole cottage industries. People are so fascinated by Lewis's biography and his literature.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, The few things that are out there about his philosophy are generally pretty good. I think. Yeah. Um, but they usually pick up on one argument or one concept all great except they never in my view addressed in a thorough comprehensive systematic way his understanding that the deepest level of engagement is worldview engagement yes mm. and and christianity can, uh, needs to be seen in uh, w- with other, other dimensions, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's recommendations for living life and for spiritual connection with God. Uh, but at one level, Christianity offers uh, a, a worldview that is intellectually competitive with the other worldviews on offer in our culture. And to pose it like that, I thought, and do it in a comprehensive way, not just in a little article or a talk, yeah, but make the whole book that way. Yeah. And so really, I did the table of contents as a kind of a skeletal outline of his worldview. Mm-hmm. I'm a big I'm a big framework person, and that suggests the framework. Not that I don't appreciate the other books that were about Lewis's philosophy. Barkman's is very long and very scholarly. Yeah, and um, McGrath has done a very good biography and some other things like that, uh, Baggett's book, uh, C.S. Lewis as Philosopher, mm-hmm. is, is got just a, a generous handful of really good essays. Yeah. But there, it's not a book that, that drives one central argument all the way through.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Things like that, I thought, well, nobody's really doing what I think ought to be done with Lewis.
1: Yeah. I, that's That's why I was so excited to see, and the Christian worldview, because that's, I've had that same inclination that he's presenting a view of life. You see it in um, his essay, I think it's in Theolo- Is Theology Poetry at the end, where he talks about yeah. that, that famous quote, right? So uh, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it I see everything. Yes. And to me,
0: that's worldview thinking. He's saying this makes sense right. of the world. And he also has a quote uh, in which he says, um, a lot of people think that we're recommending Christianity because we believe it's good. Mm. it'll improve society. Yeah. We also need to make sure we tell them it's because it's true.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. And then, and it's beautiful. You could add that in there too, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, So in order to, um, in order to understand Lewis's worldview, we'd have to actually go through your whole book and we don't have time for that. And people just go buy the book. You know, he's like, he said, he he laid out the skeletal view of CS Lewis's worldview but it's even more it's more than a skeleton because he puts some flesh on it as well but a couple things i wanted to, to focus on sure for, for our conversation here is just a, a couple of his arguments which yeah they do get they get hashed out a lot but they're they're so good there's a reason they do sure. and then um maybe the doctrine of the trinity and we'll see if we can get into to good and evil as well uh Each one of these could be their own podcast episode. So uh, for the listeners, we're going to have to be a little bit more brief than maybe you'd want, but uh, we'll see if we can get it done here. Um, So I wanted to start with the argument from desire. Can you you, uh, sketch that out for us?
0: Yeah. I think uh, interpreters differ a little bit over exactly what that is. Mm -hmm. It's different aspects. Sometimes called the argument from joy, Mm -hmm. but at any rate, uh, the fact that Lewis makes this such a central element of his life story yeah. and the whole Surprised by Joy book, which is one of his attempts at an autobiography. Then he gives that allegorical autobiography in, um, in uh, Pilgrim's Regress. Yeah. There's also an, undiscovered, uh, an unpublished manuscript that uh, has recently been discovered. Oh, wow. called, it's, been, it's just been titled Early Prose Joy. And in that, we actually learned some details he'd misremembered, uh, interestingly enough. McGrath brings some of those um, corrections out in his book. Yeah, his, um, his, the
1: date of his conversion and stuff like that. Yeah,
0: it's, it's funny how he Lewis missed some of those own details of his own life. But yeah. at any rate, the whole idea that joy, the search for joy, the desire for deep meaning and fulfillment in life, was such a, a an element um, in Lewis's own journey, and at one level you say, well, here's the unique personality of Lewis. He loved romantic literature, uh, by literature by the romantic authors and poets, and he loved, um, in many ways, a lot of atmospheric novels and things he said he loved squirrel Nutkin and the, the <laughs> of, of the season the fall season coming and and I have to admit I have no such emotional responses to these things yeah. so, <laughs> so when, you, when you when you think about this you think well then we must not mistakenly identify Lewis's idiosyncratic emotional makeup, with a universal human desire for joy and fulfillment. Yeah. And so I see him with his own idiosyncratic makeup, just like we all have our own, basically being in the Augustinian tradition of the restless heart. Yeah, totally. Made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless Mm -hmm. until they find their rest in thee. And so that's the way I, I look at Lewis in a way that's universalizable to all of us. And the debate, uh, often, about this is whether joy is, is an argument in Lewis or just a motivating drive. Right. And some people make a dichotomy here. It's just a motivating drive. There's no way to make an argument from joy. I don't see it that way. And in the book, um, I try to talk about a worldview context to make sense of all important phenomena of life in the world mind, morality, the desire for fulfillment and joy.
2: Yeah.
0: and So um, good and evil, lots of important phenomena that require worldview explanation. So my point would be it's an argument in the sense that that drive makes sense and is not irrational in a theistic universe, yep. distinctively Christian universe, but is irrational and odd on the face of a universe described by naturalism or other alternatives, I yeah, think the argument.
1: I, I love that argument. And I love the way you you pose that as well because that is, um, that that starting premise is something that we all experience. You know, we're all experiencing that. And then you're asking them, "Hey, look, given this phenomena, which one makes sense of that experience that we all are feeling?" And if you don't feel that experience, okay, well, we'll use a different argument. But I think you do, if you're being honest with yourself. And so it's a, it's a worldview argument. It's a way of comparing and contrasting worldviews, trying to make sense of the phenomena that we're all experiencing. Yep, I think that's right. Yeah, that's so fantastic. It's, it gets me all I'm, – I'm starting to sweat. I'm getting excited here.
0: Now There are different ways of viewing what a world, worldview argument can be, by the way. For example, yeah. you could have a sort of presuppositional mm-hmm. apologetics, which I don't engage in, Right. Uh, saying these are my presuppositions, and from them I'm going to deduce all the conclusions that – I'm driving toward, but I think this kind of worldview argument is more uh, let's look at the explanatory framework that does the best job.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so um, so would you consider yourself um, in the cumulative case inference to the best explanation kind of yeah. apologetic camp? Yeah. yeah. If yeah. you had
0: to put a label on it, I think I would.
1: Sure. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. And so I, I consider myself more in the presuppositional, but it, it seems like we're doing very similar things where we're starting with this phenomenon and we're saying, you know, which worldview best makes sense of that phenomenon that we're experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So there's the, we got our desire. Would you put, um I know you'd mentioned it in your book, the, sometimes it's called the lived ontological proof. Yeah. Is, is that synonymous with this desire? Or is that something
0: else? Yes. Um, I take Lewis there when he says, My search for joy was a kind of a lived ontological proof or argument. I'm not sure exactly what term he uses. Well, you just think about this. Mm -hmm. The classical Anselmian um, ontological argument is about the concept of the most perfect possible being. A being than which there can be no greater. Mm -hmm. And from that... Anselm moves to the conclusion that that being must exist. We know about planning his rehabilitation uh, and his modal upgrade of that argument, all that stuff. Okay. Yep. So when Lewis says that, first of all, it, it's an allusion to his classical philosophical background education. That's for sure. What, yep. a, what a connection to make, but it's a lived argument. So, The concept of God for Anselm, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And Anselm says, well, you have a concept of God. And from that, I can prove that God exists. So if you're thinking of a God that doesn't exist, that's not the greatest possible being. All that stuff, that line of logic. Yeah. Now, in Lewis's life, he had almost a 20-year-long search for God, starting from early atheism in his teens he kind of lost his faith when his mother died when he was very young, Mm -hmm. didn't find an anchor or foundation, and early on was a materialist-type thinker, went through various stages of philosophy, idealism, even a little bit of dualism, on and on, finally to theism, and uh, ultimately to Christianity. Okay. Now, in a sense, he was looking for um, a concept of an ultimate that he could live his life by. He keeps saying at every philosophical stage, it wasn't satisfying, I couldn't live by it, and I found some kind of conceptual problem with it. So both conceptual and practical problems. And he also uh, refers to King Arthur's court, the perilous seat, the siege perilous, Hmm. where any knight who sits in that seat who's unworthy would be killed. And this Arthurian legend. So, in other words, you can't put something in the seat of your heart and the throne of your life that's unworthy. Yeah. And we have 20 years of doing that. So, this is a kind of lived, on logical argument of trying how about this concept? How about this concept? And none of them were satisfying, none of them were able to be lived by and give a satisfying life, and plus he started finding problems uh, philosophically with materialism, naturalism, dualism, all of which he tried yeah. over a 20-year period. So the lived on logical, in my view, is looking for the concept of a being that really is worthy of worship, and you really can trust your life to.
1: Yeah. That's that's a great way of explaining it. It reminds me a little bit of his first and second things. You know, you aim for the first things, you get second. But if you try to put one of those second things on the throne, you're not going to get either. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, So I picked these three arguments that that I want to go through. We have the argument from desire, which I think kind of corresponds to the affections. Then you have the argument of reason, which corresponds to you know reason and, and rationality. And then the argument from morality, which corresponds to how you should act and i think those three hit on like three central aspects of what it means to be human and i love that lewis made arguments from them so uh, moving on to the argument from reason i i love this i spent a lot of time reading this i love victor repper i love yeah. any kind of all of these guys there's been so much work done on it but what I, what i found so interesting from your book was um, a quote from a grief observed I wanted to just read that because I thought it was an interesting way of looking at the argument from reason. Uh, and Lewis wrote this under a pseudonym. So people didn't know it was Lewis um, until – was it T.S. Eliot discovered it
0: that, that not, Lewis wrote this? Well, I'm not remembering exactly who, but I think he wrote it uh, – the pseudonym was N.W. Clerk.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that even that – so everything Lewis does has some kind of meaning behind it. Yeah, And, that, and I forgot what it stood for, but it means like
0: something yeah. about writer-clerk's a writer. Clerk's a writer know, one who and, can read and write. Yeah, that's right. I take that as a person who's numb and has lost the richness uh, of life by the loss of an intimate partner. Hmm. And he can just read and write, and he's decided to write out his grief in like a journal.
1: Yeah. Wow, that's so deep. Uh, So in this quote, he says, if H, and he's talking about joy, his wife who just passed, is not... If she's just gone, if she is not any longer, if she didn't go to heaven, she didn't have an immaterial soul. If she is not, then she never was. Then I mistook a cloud of atoms for a person. Uh, there aren't and there never were any people. Death only reveals the vacuity that was always there. And so it's like another take, even in his grief, another take on the argument from reason that if she was just matter in motion, then I mistook her for a person I thought she was. She's just Adams, and then I'm just Adams, and then everyone's just Adams, but that can't be because Adams can't be deceived about other Adams being
0: persons. It was just like, well, even in his grief observed, that's amazing. I know. it's an, In some ways, it's an intellectually complicated book, a book just emoting. It, one would think it's, it's not really just emoting because it's got these intellectual... Uh, points that he discusses. But I, I do think for one who experiences tragic loss, uh, as he did with losing joy to cancer, your emotions are all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can uh, be angry with God. You can question your faith. There are a lot, particularly early in the experience of grieving. And this is a grief observed. So You see, in the early pages, he's all over the place. He imagines that God was a vivisectionist, a a mad experimental scientist who cut joy up in the laboratory and made her suffer so. And then he also questions whether maybe materialism, which he'd long since vanquished philosophically, that rears its head here in the passage that you're quoting and kind of haunts him. Oh, if materialism was true... That means this was all a big mistake. I thought I was a person relating to another person. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, so the philosophical uh, dimension of this doesn't go away, even in his grief. And uh, like Nick Volterstorff's book, a Lament for a Son, yeah. which again is, is recording your grief and the process of, of coming to grips with your faith and your loss. Uh, I would I would hand Nick's book to a person who's going through grief. I don't know if I would hand Lewis's book. <laughs> you, you know, all yeah. the philosophical points come up like that.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, what an interesting, interesting point there. Yeah. So um C.S. Lewis's miracles is where um his argument, what's come to be known as the argument from reason. Uh, is is best laid out, though um, he did. Yeah. He it, you can find it as a through line through all of his essays and or yeah. in a lot of his essays. And De Futilitate was probably the best essay where it's it's uh, it's ex- explicated. But um, can you sketch out just the the argument from reason for us? I know it's very complex and it's been taken in different ways.
0: Well, well the whole idea of um, actually it goes to the reason and causes distinction that I mentioned earlier that Anscombe helped him understand
2: mm-hmm.
0: if. His basic point is that if what we call human thought is basically a product of non-rational material causes,
2: Mm
0: -hmm. uh, then it's not rational.
2: Yeah,
0: And uh, he does say in the book he's aware of the sort of um, uh, classical naturalism and classical materialism uh, viewpoint that uh, determinism is entailed by naturalism or materialism. Uh, that has given way in more recent decades to the possibility that, uh, and often the eternality of, of of the cosmos, of the universe. Mm-hmm. You know, even Einstein couldn't easily come to grips with the implication of his own theory that there was a Big Bang. Yeah. The universe had a beginning. And uh, from Aristotle on, that that's been a a feeling that the universe is all there is um, uh, of the physical and it's deterministic in its operations. So that would be bad for rational thought if rational thought were a product of that. But, you know, Lewis also makes room in miracles to discuss uh, even what he knew of indeterminism at the time because quantum mechanics was being born – So he even comments on that a little bit, but I think most people fixate on the deterministic part. But regardless of determinism or indeterminism, as long as those are non rational material forces, they undercut rationality. That's his point. Yeah. And what it is about rationality that's so key to protect is really at least twofold. It's not just any old thought, because you know I could eat a pizza this evening and go to bed, and it caused me to dream and have images that aren't uh, veridical. And so that's that's just life. That's just being a physical creature. Uh, but it's when we want to make an argument, yeah, uh, and have a a line of reasoning, point by point. Inferential reasoning, linear reasoning, discursive reasoning—that's in great jeopardy. That's that's undone uh, and cannot be valid if natural forces really account for it. Most people fixate on that yeah. uh, when they when they talk about Lewis's argument from reason. But you can't just have that, as uh, Aristotle told us: uh, if nothing is self-evident, nothing can be proved. So another capa- rational capacity of reason is seeing self-evident truths, things that are immediately true.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, and of course, we know that the later uh, few decades now of epistemology have really gotten into Thomas' kind of a revival of Thomas Reed yeah and and um, realist epistemology that know we have knows we have native intellectual powers
2: mm-hmm. that
0: will deliver immediately and directly to us some things that are true given the right circumstances, right environment, all of that. So, right, so the, the power, and that would be undercut. Reason understood that way of delivering immediate beliefs that are rationally warranted would also be undercut with yeah. natural forces ultimately account for them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I love that so much. And initially I thought, you know, this is the same as planning as evolutionary argument against naturalism and then reading some more reading, uh, reading Plantinga more, reading Repert more, seeing that these are actually two different arguments where uh, uh, Plantinga is arguing that if naturalistic evolution were the cause for your cognitive faculties, then you couldn't even believe that to be true because it would probably give you beliefs that are aimed at survival instead of necessarily aimed at truth. Whereas Lewis is saying, look, you're trying to argue with me and you're trying to get me to see reason, but your whole underlying worldview says that everything you think and believe is the cause of physical uh, happenings in your skull and physical happenings don't respond to the laws of logic. Like your whole argument presupposes or showing that what you're saying is self-defeating. We're, we're just matter in motion. There's no way we're, we're all causes and there's no reason. But Lewis always has this line where he slips in and he
0: says, that's like philosophically slitting your own throat. Yeah. And planting it does give him uh, credit for inspiring yeah. the evolutionary argument against naturalism. So they are very related, mm-hmm. but the natural force that planting identifies is more updated to be, you know, biological evolution right. and uh, natural selection.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really great. I love that. Um that's I, I can't talk about it now. Maybe we can talk later. Uh, I I love that idea. In my paper, I want to uh, blend some Lewis and Van Til with actually uh, Donald Davidson because I think that there's <laughs> there's, a, there's a line through there that we can that we can talk about. But um, moving on to the argument for morality, um, sure. a lot of people will know this one, so we don't have to go in in depth a ton. But something interesting that I want to talk about with you is um, there's some people online who think that. And, and that's a bad sentence to start with. There's some people online, but um, who think, you know, Lewis is a heretic. He he talks about this Tao, and so he's, he's holding to, like, Eastern religion, and um, can you explain for us what Lewis meant by the Tao and how this interacts with his yeah. argument for morality?
0: He actually says in a footnote or someplace in the Abolition of ban. Hmm. he also says elsewhere that he was thinking about using the word Logos. Yeah. But he didn't because that seemed to have the Uh, obvious baggage of coming from the Christian tradition Hmm. and all that. So he was basically trying to, and he he, he wanted to suggest that there's something that's not distinctively Christian about our common morality, Hmm. which is um, construed in a realist way. It's objective and it's universal throughout the human race. And uh, that he says is so important to being human but it's also important as one pointer to God. And that's his moral argument. Mere Christianity starts with a realist version, natural law version of the moral argument, unlike uh, a Kantian version of the moral argument. Yeah. You, you know, and some other types of moral arguments. Uh, his is really a, sort of a popularized version. Um, he's a realist, he's a moral realist, obviously. And he thinks there is a natural law. This is this is Thomistic language. Mm-hmm. He almost never gives Thomas the uh, credit he should. Everybody is always connecting him with Plato. Yeah. That, that's true in many respects, not in all.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But he's Aristotelian down deep, and uh, and very often Thomistic. Uh, and that's that's what this is, as opposed to a, a, a Platonic argument. Aristotle and Thomas would be very proud of him. Hmm. So, what he thought was his, maybe his best book, um, uh, just a tight, well reasoned book, was abolition. Yeah. And uh, he's just arguing from the presence of a common moral law, noble by all sort of normal human beings. And uh, he doesn't even make much of a case for God, really, in abolition. Mm-hmm. But that same moral law spoken of in abolition, key to our humanity is what he picks up the thread on, first page of mere Christianity, and makes it an argument for theism.
1: Yeah. Well, and that and that fits your worldview model again, um, or yeah. his worldview model, if, if that's really what he was going with, because um, someone might, or one of our listeners, uh, some of our listeners might hear, there's something not distinctively Christian, and they might kind of pull back from that. But if you think about it, it's important that it's not distinctively idiosyncratic to our religion, because... We want this common phenomena that, hey, look, you know how you think it's wrong for someone to steal a bit of your orange, as C.S. Lewis says, or to steal your seat on the bus or to take your wallet? Yeah, I think that's wrong, too. And that makes sense over here in this Christian worldview, what Lewis is doing in mere Christianity. But it's not going to make sense over
0: in your worldview. But see that the doctrine of creation in many ways, Mm -hmm. uh, long before you get to discussing the doctrine of uh, redemption or something like that, what kind of thing are we as created by God in God's image? We're rational, moral, social, uh, relational beings, and the moral aspect of our nature, um, common to us all, is going to have common moral insights. At the end of abolition, he has an appendix.
2: Mm -hmm. It
0: shows that Chinese culture, uh, Indian culture, uh, cultures past and present, uh, all share the same basic fundamental ideas about the Value of life, the value of property, truth telling, and lying, all those, but they package them differently at their place in history yeah. or their particular culture or religion. But there's something going on that's not just cultural and religious relativism. Uh, people get fixated on the little minor differences in articulation and forget the fact that they're all sort of centering on the same human values.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard both. I've heard uh, both ways uh, from, from people wanting to deny the moral argument. Some say, like you said, they're trying to downplay the, the similarities. Others will go, yeah, look, it's just the same similarities. Maybe there's an archetype at play, but there's nothing transcendent about it. And we want to say, well, no, it's it's so inescapable that every culture has felt this way, or most cultures have felt this way. Yeah. And what's the reason for that? Which view of the world can make sense of that?
0: That's yeah. right. That's right. That's right. Yep. Okay. Um, in many ways, he's a moral realist. He's mm-hmm. a uh, he's a theological realist. He he believes these are about real things, and that doesn't make sense in a lot of worldviews. Right.
1: Yeah, and, and one of it, man, he's so good, but what something he does so well with that is he, in Mere Christianity, he talks about how you can deny that until you bump into somebody, and then it becomes very real. Then everyone becomes yeah. a moral realist. Hey, you should not have done that. You ought not to have done or treated me like that.
0: Yeah. And yeah. it's okay if society conditions us to think these ways. It's okay if there's some evolutionary uh, explanation. My point in the book is simply that uh, these would be mediatorial processes, um, whether it's the evolutionary shaping of our moral emotions and moral reactions. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, they're mediated, but they're not created. Yeah, by, by evolution or by social shaping. Uh, that's the kind of embodied world we live in where we've got all these material mechanisms that help shape us and mediate what's higher. Yeah, And Lewis was huge on the lower, mediating what's higher. Yeah, I love that. I've seen a little bit of that work in, in moral
1: philosophy uh, with Thomas Nagel citing like Sharon Street, uh, a Darwinian dilemma for... Uh, moral realist. Yeah. Moral, and it's like yeah. a, it's like a moral argument version of uh, planning as evolutionary argument against naturalism. And it's it's so fantastic. She's actually arguing you should not be a moral realist if you're if you hold evolutionary a naturalistic evolutionary theory. Absolutely.
0: I don't know if you've seen the Cambridge Handbook of um, Evolutionary Ethics it came out a few mm-hmm. years ago, just a few years ago. And uh, I have the last ch- entry, the last chapter in that. Okay, uh, and the the Sharon Streets and the Richard Joyce types are in the early part. Their arguments. Um, uh, Russ Schaefer Landau is in there. Um, Bill Kirk uh, Fitzpatrick, from Rochester, is in there. But I, I get the last word, interestingly enough. Huh. And it's uh, I call the chapter a theological evaluation of evolutionary ethics. Hmm. Try to avoid dichotomies. Yeah, You can make better sense of evolutionary ethics to the extent that evolution helps shape our moral emotions on theism than on naturalism. Yeah, wow.
1: <laughs> I love that. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, so um, most of our listeners will be familiar with the uh, the trilemma, either you know Jesus was a liar, lunatic, or Lord. Um, something that I, I really appreciate about your work that I, I didn't know before reading yours uh, was that well, I knew like uh, Christopher Hitchens would say, you know, oh, yeah. C.S. Lewis didn't know how to make a syllogism, the poor man, you know, and just bashing Lewis. Oh, yeah. um, yeah. But you you brought up a, a Christian philosopher, uh, Howard Snyder, who, who said that there's also a, a – so these three are not um, jointly exhaustive because there's another one. G- uh, Jesus could have been merely mistaken. Sure. And uh, I, w- I wanted to get your thoughts on – to me, it's like – uh, I know Peter Kreeft, I think, says there's no way that someone could be merely mistaken that they were God yeah. or not. That would, that would be the lunatic option. So those two go together. What, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Uh, well, uh, I want to go back and frame up the point of the argument in a yeah. minute, but yeah, I'm with Kreeft on that one. Okay. And also um, um, there's there's another reply out there to Dan Howard Snyder. Um and I can't remember the, the reply, who also is with Kreeft and me. Okay. That's kind of an um, a stretch. Yeah. To be merely mistaken. But if you think about this, Lewis is not the simpleton that a lot of people make him out to be in thinking this little uh, two or three sentence uh, argument in Mere Christianity, which is a series of popular radio broadcasts. Right. Uh, that, that was the totality of the argument, Lewis is well aware of the uh, things said about the nature of Jesus of the Gospels. He's aware of the quest for the historical Jesus. Um, Albert Schweitzer's book, you know, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Uh, In our day, we have the Jesus Seminar. But in in many ways, these are sort of naturalist-motivated um, interpretations that cannot acknowledge the supernatural aspect of Jesus. So, very often, the kindest thing you can hear said by naturalist interpreters is Jesus was a great moral teacher.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, as he's unfolding the nature of Jesus in *Mere Christianity*, over this series of radio broadcasts that have been all assembled in *In Mere Christianity*, the book, he's saying. That's one option that he's a good moral teacher. I have to take off the table. Right. That makes no sense at all. Take it off the table. And then a good moral teacher would never say the things he did and be lying and and all that or be psychotic. If that's off the table, then you're left with a trilemma. Mm -hmm. So there was already an option. And so, what you do in in dis, in reasoning by the rule of disjunctive syllogism,
2: mm-hmm.
0: eliminate the options till you find the one that's your conclusion? So you've got those three options, and in many ways it's about assigning probabilities to the options and he thought that the other options have very low probability, yeah excuse me <laughs> no around. problem and so he's getting to the option well then it's most likely he's lord yeah and so it's a process of elimination there are clearly other other uh, options maybe yeah two or three others so it doesn't have to be a trilemma it could be a quadrilemma it could be a hexalemma yeah you know, yeah a lemma just means a line of reasoning
2: mm-hmm.
0: so you choose lines if he's if he's um uh, Lunatic, you go down this line of reasoning. If he's uh, a good moral teacher, you go down this line. And Lewis is just um, very briefly assessing those probabilities. Yeah. And coming up with the problem. We've got to say he's Lord. The others may just make no sense to Lewis. Yeah. So that's a big debate. But uh, in many ways, it goes to the Bultmannian shadow that hangs over all of modern theology that the Jesus of the Gospels um, just cannot be the Jesus of history. Right. Because the Jesus of the gospels has a supernatural aspect.
1: Yeah. And we can turn on our light switch nowadays. We flip. So we can't believe in the supernatural. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, moving on to the doctrine of the Trinity. And this again is so encouraging to me because, um, for, for so long and, and, you know, I, I already admitted that I'm kind of coming from this presuppositional yeah. camp. Um, for so long, people have, have argued for bare theism. I, I'm just I'm happy to move you along to yep. to bare theism and uh, you know just believe in God. That's better than believing in not believing in God. And and so you, I, I pulled a quote from you from this book. Um, Lewis saw the doctrine of the Trinity as the largest possible framework for the Christian vision of reality, the most fundamental concept, con- the most fundamental conceptual component in the Christian worldview. And that's so encouraging to me because. Lewis is saying the Trinity is at the foundational level of our worldview. It's not just bare theism. And the amazing thing to think about with Lewis is uh, in his broadcast talks, he's broadcasting about the Trinity. And I don't know how many of us would feel very comfortable in like a, a short little broadcast talk going over the doctrine of the Trinity, but he felt
0: like it was so important that he needs to do that. It's That's a very good point. I mean, really the doctrine of creation,
2: mm.
0: Uh plays off the doctrine of the Trinity, that God, who is at the heart of reality, a self-living, self-giving life, uh, chose to freely create a finite world and invite that world back into himself, back into fellowship with himself. Um, The doctrine of the incarnation uh, plays off of the Trinity, that it's God the Son, the second person, who became incarnate in a first-century person, Jesus of Nazareth, and thereby bonded to our humanity forever, mm. uh, to show us how close to humanity he wanted to uh, wants to be. So, in my view, the doctrine of Trinity is the central organizing doctrine. Yes, and is is amazing. In fact, the last fourth, the fourth book of um, of mere Christianity is entitled. Um, uh, beyond yeah. personality, yeah. beyond personality, first steps in doctrine of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. To be really honest, when I look at Lewis commentators and interpreters and people who want to do their apologetics by partly uh, uh, referring to Lewis, I never see it referred to. Yeah, yeah, and that this is an amazing, amazing um, blind spot to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that uh, we're not mining the riches of of the doctrine of the Trinity for proposing the kind of world in which everything about us makes best sense.
1: Yeah, and I, I think I think you're absolutely right there, and I think that. It's so often, the doctrine of the Trinity is so often uh, seen as something we'll get to later, once you bridge the gap, once you come over to theism, then we can finally get to Trinity, where you, you've, you're you already in, so you have to accept it, whereas Lewis is is putting it at the, the foundational level and saying, this is an explanation for the personality that we find in the world, that yeah. me, right now, I'm a person, and I've been made, and so in that sense, I really see Lewis as a personalist, even though that may be anachronistic to, to point back to him. I don't know, it, 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 personalism might have been at the same time as Lewis, but... He he grounds foundational reality in personal in, in persons the personal
0: that's right personal God yeah that's right I mean personalism like the Boston School <clears throat> was a, a form of uh, divine finitism and all that <clears throat> no reason to go back to that mistake <clears throat> okay but um, that's right I mean if you say well I'm going to take a more linear approach um, unfolding to bare theism. If you accept bare theism and then Christianity, then you'll accept the Trinity largely on dogmatic grounds. Yeah. Okay. But what Lewis is saying is he's willing to argue uh, in linear fashion about lots of topics. But I, I think so there's the reason side, the rational side. I think we have to also appreciate that his approach was more uh, comprehensive and holistic. Yeah. Than the imaginative side. Yep. Yeah. Suspend your disbelief. Let's don't argue for now. Just consider what is entailed by these different worldviews and imagine what reality would be like if they are in fact true and then compare that and suspend judgment for now. Mm -hmm. Like in his fantasy and his fiction, you really do get a a kind of sense of that. that, uh, And so the Trinitarian universe – of orthodoxy uh, explains so much. Yeah. And, and it's rich and it's fulfilling. And surely we would say we deeply want it. Hmm. We might, our mind, our reason might say it's false. It's improbable. Uh, I can't accept it right now rationally. But my goodness, wouldn't it be wonderful if it were true?
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that I like the way you explain that because it's it's he's it's suspend um, your disbelief come over and put on these goggles come over and, and drive this car see how it rides and then let's go and look at yours I'm gonna poke some holes in yours and we'll see which one best explains uh reality uh with with loose I again I love I love um, Lewis talks about uh, different levels of reality like a, a two-dimensional uh, flatlander trying to think about a three-dimensional person, super duper helpful. Again, it's an analogy. He's not saying God is like that, but um, you, you you broached this topic a little bit, maybe more so than I'm, I'm thinking, but can we analyze Lewis's doctrine of the Trinity along the modern social and anti-social Trinitarian lines, or does he not neatly fit into those categories?
0: You know, I've, um, I probably don't have anything really well thought out to say about that. Yeah. But he seems he's clearly uh, a social Trinitarian of some variety. Yeah. And I I just don't see how you could not be, uh, in an orthodox vein, a social Trinitarian. And I do think that some of the anti-social Trinitarian, um, um, you know, perceptions are... That it gives up some control of a sovereign God. Mm. Sovereignty looks different uh, to the antisocial Trinitarian and some things like that. Yeah. And, and I don't read a lot in that area, but that's my impression that there's some implicit instinct for more of a top down, power down model.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I think something that's interesting that you did, you did, uh, Broach, was uh, the, the concept of the, the great dance and perichoresis. Yeah. And I think um, for anyone listening that is an anti-social uh, uh, trinitarian, which you know, I, I'm not. I don't. I'm not super comfortable with social trinitarianism because it seems like it, it's bro. It's uh, bordering on tritheism, right? But Lewis is bringing it back. With yeah, that's the debate. Yeah, right, and that's the debate. And Lewis is bringing it back with this doctrine of perichoresis, the great dance. And again, I, I want to put him in con- in conversation with uh, Van Til, who also did that and also brought in the doctrine of perichoresis and why that's so important for saying that God is, uh, he's a person and he's three persons, right? And you don't say that in the same way that it's contradictory. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that was so interesting. Uh, do, any thoughts on the, on the great dance? Um, is that is that fresh in your mind enough to talk about?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I too am fascinated by these are meditations by uh, Saint Gregory of Nazianzus. You know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, on John chapters fourteen through seventeen in the Gospel of John, um, the the passages that refer to if J- Jesus would say, if I abide in the Father, and if the Father abides in me,
2: mm-hmm.
0: if you abide in me, and if I abide in you, yeah. all the mutual abiding, the mutual indwelling, depending on the translation, suggests, a para, in my view, a perichoretic relational universe um, that is part of the very texture of reality that God has created. In fact, it's part of the very texture of the reality that God is. Yeah. We're perichoretic relations in the Trinity. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
0: the love exchange of giving and receiving has been going on in the life of God forever. Amen. So Creation then is not to get something like the pagan gods to get worship or servants or whatever. It's to give. It's to give the gift of finite, rational, moral, spiritual life to creatures and invite them back into that divine life. Uh, As Lewis says, we have to find our place in that dance. Yeah. In that great love exchange, both in loving God and loving others. And that's that's the deepest truth of of our finite created reality.
1: Yeah, I love that, and 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 it really it's uh, it's um, bordering on uh, Swinburne's argument uh, for the Trinity from love, which he got from a, a Hugh of St. Victor or something. And it's it's the same thing where if God is a person and if he's tripersonal, then he's able to love, and he's able to create out of love, and we're able to love, and he doesn't need us he didn't create us in order to love. He didn't change his essential being in order to do that. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that. I think you, you handle that well in the book. So That's another good. thing to, to uh, recommend, uh, I wanted to end on good and evil and I, I was going to go a different direction, but as I was finishing up uh, the book, I saw uh, your treatment of Jadis. Is that right? Is that my saying that right? Jadis. The queen? I think so. I okay. Think so. Yeah. So Jadis and, um, Lewis uh, held, I think he holds to, at least he does in his books, about uh, a privationist view of evil, that evil is not a thing in and of itself. It's a corruption of a good.
0: Yeah. Is that fair, you think? Is it fair to say that he was a privationist in that sense? Oh, I think very much because if you think okay. cre- creational metaphysics, creational yeah. metaphysics, Christian metaphysics, God creates being. Mm -hmm. He creates beings with different natures, but he creates no junk. He creates no evil. There's no resistance to his creative will and power. So he creates what he wants. He may do it through secondary causes like a material creation run by laws, including evolutionary laws, but he still gets his results. So um, we have a nature that's deeply good. Even the entrance of sin, uh, theologically speaking, doesn't change the metaphysical, deeper truth hmm. of our enduring created goodness. Yeah. The kind of thing we are is good and meant for life with God. Yeah. That tell us. But there's infection. Lewis uses that term. Mm-hmm. There's a warping, a damage. Uh, he uses some terms like warping, I think, for sure. He uses like in maybe great divorce. Somebody, yeah. Their personalities become warped. But these are alien to our created nature, and uh, without them, we're we're more fully human. Yeah. So we're not truly ourselves in Louisian yeah. language until we're more fully redeemed and healed, but definitely a privationist. So something's either warped or damaged, an underlying good thing.
1: Yeah, oh, that's great, and that that again goes back to Augustine and and that privation view and and what you already talked about earlier that our hearts are restless until they find their their uh, their sourcing in God, and uh, you know I found that similar theme in uh, Herman Bavinck who talks about a, a active privationist account of of evil, and so uh, all these all these folks uh, influenced by Augustine is so fantastic, and so you can find. Augustine in and, and Lewis. Uh, if you read Miracles, you're going to see a lot of Augustine. If you read Mere Christianity, you're going to see a lot of Aristot- um, Aristotle and Aquinas. And he's deeply grounded in the historical faith, the Orthodox faith from the church fathers to the Bible. It's not just a surface level thing. And you think about all the hard work that had to go from uh, funneling all these people down into a popular level book, which was popular level back then and now is a little bit more advanced because our education system is failing us but sure. but going back to jadis uh you you were talking about the creation account in um the magician's nephew right is that that's no. yeah and and i just i was instantly thinking of uh melcor in tolkien's uh you know he's singing uh, a twisted melody and then the next sentence you bring up uh tolkien and Melkor, and i thought yes yeah, i'm thinking wrong along the right line can you recount uh
0: the, the Jadis uh, evil for us? Yeah, um, I'm not, I don't have that in front of me uh, in great detail, but the idea, I think we have to say in Lewis, is that there was the intent to spoil an originally good creation. Mm-hmm. So the entrance of sin and evil in the world is viewed as, once again, the privation, the lack, the. Um, uh, of of good, or I really think it probably communicates at least as well to say the damage or the warping yeah. uh, of the good.
1: Yeah. That's so helpful. Yeah. So the devil isn't creating things. He's warping good things that God created. God can create.
0: Well, if you think about it, in fact, the concept of a Satan figure is um, of a very good kind of created finite being mm. rational, moral, social powers uh, non-embodied we are rational moral social beings those same kinds of powers we happen to be essentially not contingently but essentially embodied beings yeah but uh, those are very good kind of, so Satan's just a creature yeah and so uh, and he's experienced damage and we've experienced damage if you think about it um, but there's no Power that rivals God, or something that eternally is evil. Yeah. Not in a theistic, monotheistic universe. Yeah. Evil is always something gone wrong. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, and
1: I think Lewis, piggybacking on Augustine, is he can use that to argue against this kind of dualism of you know ultimate good and ultimate evil eternally in battle. No, it doesn't work because good is is uh, our evil is parasitic on good. Right. Exactly yeah, so um finishing up, so you recount uh, Lewis's free will defense uh, against evil. and Lewis takes a couple different of, uh, t- a stable environment defense and and he's really it's really interesting the different lines that he takes. And so um, Lewis, the proponent of libertarian free will, of you know the leeway freedom, principle of alternate possibilities, uh, very much a a libertarian free will proponent here. And I, I, like, I, yeah, totally. And you recount that well in your book. And I think planninga has done a really good job of just picking up a lot of Lewis's arguments and then just in just arduous uh, syllogistic fashion drawing them out and, and drawing out their implications for philosophers. But an interesting thing, and, and maybe you won't you won't care as much about this, but uh, I consider myself like a, a Paralandrian compatibilist because there's this great line in uh, Paralandra where he he uh, he's talking about uh, um. Weston is going to be confronted yeah. by ransom, and ransom is like it's already happened. I can see that it's already happened, and then at this one moment, I can see that pres- predestination and free will are one—that I'm doing this freely, but it's already as if it's done. And I love this—I read this passage all the time because it, it kind of affirms it. So it's it's a a weird place to find compatibilism from Lewis, the arch uh, libertarian defense uh, arguer. So I just thought that was an interesting
0: yeah. find—different spots in him. Some people point also to the ending of the great divorce. Yeah. The chess figures, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the chess game and the giant figures are playing chess as getting in the same territory. Mm-hmm. I don't see it as a compatibilist move yeah. on Lewis's part. Mm-hmm. I think Lewis is uh, partly, he believes that his view of divine timelessness, which he gets from Augustine, Boethius, Ansel, Yeah. yeah. He thinks that can preserve libertarian free will. As I understand Lewis, he never really makes that argument in an explicit way, a direct way, Yeah, but I think he believes that'll work.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. I'm not convinced it will work. Uh, I'm not uh, a a timelessness
1: person. I think you mentioned that in the end of your book, right? This is one place where you think that we should probably not follow
0: Lewis. Well, it, it, it goes to, you know, there had to be, uh, some kind of an intersection there had to be in the fullness of time, an intersection of Greek thought concepts, concerns philosophically, with Christian thought, Christian belief. Mm. Uh, the seven great councils needed Christian categories, uh, needed Greek categories, to formulate Christian doctrines. They needed yeah. Greek logic, etc. Uh, and <clears throat> the question is, how much Greek philosophy? When does it become just? baggage yeah. actually could distort. And timelessness certainly has a Greek heritage.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and so that element, in my view, is worth discussing more fully,
2: yeah.
0: maybe being, because uh, I'm not prepared to do it, we were, none of us prepared to do it right here, Yeah, right now, as being probably some of the baggage. Now, in mere Christianity, when Lewis is talking about the life of the Trinity, he has a chapter on timelessness. And he starts right out by saying, this is not essential to orthodoxy. If you have a different opinion, you can read the chapter if you want to, or you can just move on. But he's pretty, he's at least officially committing to timelessness. If you read his robust accounts of free will, Mm -hmm. uh, you wonder how free will and timelessness can really go together. But free will is critical in a way that timelessness is not, yeah. to the vision of a relational universe. If it's truly a relational universe where God takes relational risks in creating libertarian free creatures, that's the deeper value than timelessness. I think there's a tension
2: yeah. that,
0: under discussion, we could work out between timelessness and and, and libertarian free will, and that libertarian should uh, free will has to be preserved. Yeah, timelessness, and, I'm not so sure.
1: Yeah, type of triage going on there, yeah.
0: And, and I think uh, also, I'm I'm
1: pretty sure you brought this up, but the great dance and perichoresis might also be at odds with the timelessness, block universe kind of yeah, yeah. aspect, which, if that's the case, then Lewis said, the Trinity is deeper, more foundational than block universe. So if that's the case and they do conflict, then drop the
0: block universe timelessness view. And the, and the dominoes uh, continue to fall. I mean, then all of a sudden you've got, uh, I think I mentioned this also, Maybe in the incarnation chapter <clears throat> that uh, the incarnation, God acts in history. Yeah, so those things also readily um, look like their intention with timelessness.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. And this is this is like the weakest area for me where I, I, I'm not well versed on time, so we'll have to uh, pick this up at a different time. But. Um, Dr. Peterson, thanks so much for your time. I wonder if I could ask just one, if I could put to bed one last uh, misconception about Lewis, which I thought you did a great job on, uh, universalism in the last battle. Oh, yeah. People just, the last battle, you know, Lewis was a universalist. And I think even in one of the prefaces, maybe someone wrote a preface to uh, the great divorce. And I think it was this, this lady. And she said, you know, finally, yeah, you know, Lewis's universalism is put on full display. And I was like, what the heck is going on with this? Mm-hmm. Can you can I'm you
0: uh, lack of making a fi- finer distinctions? Yeah, so finer distinctions, sharper categories
2: mm-hmm.
0: it need to be applied. <clears throat> Clearly, uh, if we use the sort of standard categories these days of exclusivism and pluralism, Lewis is neither one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then universalism, I think he's not a universalist either, right. but an exclusivist is basically going to say. Um, that there's no salvation apart from explicit belief in Christ. Mm -hmm. But then we have the idea that this is a good God, a fair and just and loving God. And think, well, then the religious luck or bad luck of people throughout history and around the globe is that nobody has had an equal chance Mm -hmm. to hear the gospel and to explicitly accept Christ. Countless millions have lived and died without ever hearing the gospel, or may I say, a credible presentation of the gospel. That's why I have to block certain religious channels on my cable so that my grandkids can't see some of those presentations. Yeah, yeah. They're too tender. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, even a credible. So, uh, exclusivism suggests that God is willing to hold people accountable for something not within their power, to Mm -hmm. make somebody come and preach the gospel in a credible way to them. And it's not within their power, so a lot of people, because that's so unlovely, and suggests an unjust God, they become pluralists. They well, there must be just one uh, supernatural being, divine realm, and all religions are sort of different ways.
1: Yeah, he's the real or the
0: elephant. Yeah, yeah, that's a Hindu a Hindu poem actually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, about Brahman. Yeah. Uh, Brahman, uh, it's a non non evangelistic religion. And so it's inherently plural, doctrinally, it's pluralistic. So at at any rate, Lewis is neither of those. And he's recognizing if God is truly just and truly merciful and loving, then exclusivism certainly cannot be true. And what do you do with? the great variability among the experiences of people on how the exposure they have to the gospel. Yeah. So here's this episode where Emmett, the warrior that has served Tash Mm -hmm. all his life with great fidelity and earnestness. And Aslan says to him, I see your heart. Effectively he's saying, I see your heart. You were seeking the good. You were mistaken. Mm
2: Mm-hmm
0: about who embodied the good but i'm going to uh, in my infinite wisdom uh, i'm translating here uh, i'm going to accept all of that uh, as service done to me mm-hmm. not that he's preaching a salvation by works but he's preventing this from being an unjust universe yeah in which emmett didn't didn't have a chance for clarification until he met aslan yeah and you multiply that over many cases, but then you get the universalism. At the, I don't see how the universalism could be uh, attributed to Lewis. Universalism is something God does. He's going to make sure everybody's uh, going to be saved. Yeah. And what Lewis is saying many times throughout a lot of his writings, Great Divorce, other places as well. It's up to us what happens to us.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so if we're all saved, we're all saved. But or if we if, if somebody wants to go to hell, the 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 door to hell is what was he say the, uh, locked from the inside? Locked on the inside yeah. kind mm-hmm. of thing. So the creatures lock themselves up right in their own hell. And so God gives them the intolerable compliment. Of letting them have their free will, yeah. Um, so, I, I it's just hard for me to see that Lewis. It, he naturally, we would hope that everyone would be saved, and in mm-hmm. the uh, eschatological future, the divine uh, mercy and grace would pursue them and somehow bring them all in. But you never know because there's so much up to the creature.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so so even Lewis's strong affirmation of libertarian free will would preclude him from being a universalist. If he were if he believed yeah. in uh election then per- perhaps God could elect all per- persons, but um he he's not. And so no. even in in the book, now there's there's bad Narnians or you know uh one of the princesses uh of Narnia, she she doesn't follow him. She's not a friend of Narnia anymore. I forgot Jill or, or one of the girls, yeah. oh, Susan. Susan. Yeah, yeah. And she's not she's not a friend of Narnia anymore. So she's yeah. So hope for her as long as she's still alive, but um, you, certainly he's not a universalist, though um, some people may take issue that he's not uh, an exclusivist. Um, you know, work that out yourself. You're going to answer that differently based on your own theological uh, pre-commitments, um, but he's not a universalist. So we need to put that myth uh, to bed. Yeah.
0: yeah. Use your own theological pre-commitments, but be fair to the actual Lewis text. Amen. <laughs> totally. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Well, uh, Dr. Peterson, again, Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for this book, C.S. Lewis and the Christian Worldview. Uh, I, I recommend everyone go grab that copy right now. There's a lot that we didn't talk about. We did cover a ton, but there's so much that we didn't that um, Dr. Peterson draws out of Lewis, this this great philosopher, Christian poet, uh, child story, uh, author. It's, it's awesome. And I really appreciated your emphasis on the Christian worldview. That was really helpful for me. Well, you're certainly
0: welcome. And I might add one recommendation to your listeners. Yeah, please. Uh, don't just buy a single copy, buy a case. There you go. <laughs> and give it out at all special gifting occasions, weddings, birthdays, bar mitzvahs. Yeah. Help your friends. It's yeah. a real universe. That's it's a universe. <laughs> That's awesome.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks. So this has been uh, Parker's Pensies. As always, all glory.